High-performing teams have human leadership. Human leadership creates trust, purpose, and belonging at all levels. We've developed three core workshops to elevate your team with human leadership. Find out how to bring human leadership to your workplace at www.wearehumanleaders.com. Welcome to the We Are Human Leaders podcast. I'm Sally Clark. Many of us tend to think of work and play as two separate concepts. We banish play to outside of work hours, or as busy working adults, some of us barely play at all. Today, Alexis Sana and I are speaking with a woman who will change how you think about play. Dara Simkin shares how these restrictive, rigid ideas about play do us, our leadership, and our business a massive disservice. She unpacks how play is actually an essential component of our humanity and what we stand to gain when we welcome play into our work lives and beyond. Dara Simkin is a play pioneer, speaker and facilitator who works with leaders looking to unlock creativity, connectedness and innovation for themselves and their teams. She is founder and chief play officer at Culture Hero and is a thought leader in shifting our understanding of play and its implications for business. This conversation was full of insight and it was deeply joyful for Alexis and myself. I'm sure it will be for you too. Let's delve in. Welcome to We Are Human Leaders, Dara. It is an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. And before we dive into your work and your professional journey, we'd love to get to know a little bit more about you personally first and the journey that's brought you to this important work that you're doing now. I am originally from the United States. I don't know whether or not you can hear in my accent. (laughs) We were actually just speaking before the show that I got my citizenship yesterday. So very excited. To Australia. That's very exciting. Yeah, I came here 13 years ago. I did a bit of PR and marketing when I was at uni. I was always really into the idea of like event planning and things like that. And when I came to Australia, I got sponsored for a marketing job and I worked for a group of bars. And I did events and promotion and marketing and things like that. And it served me for two years, did it great, got my PR. And then I went on to become a life coach. And I did a lot of facilitation in my life coaching around how to manage stress and looking at anxiety and just trying to have a bit more of a joyful approach to things. I actually always tried to create a character when I was facilitating back in the day. So I had one workshop that I ran around how to tame your inner critic. And I dressed up as a lion tamer. Because I often think sometimes we approach mental health from a very, very serious lens. And while it is absolutely serious, I think that we can incorporate a bit more of a lightness to it to make it more approachable. And so for me, it was a really nice way to cut the thick air in a way by incorporating these kind of silly characters. And when I was doing these facilitation pieces, I was turning 30 at the time. So this was about eight years ago. And I wanted to throw an epic 30th. So I threw a camp for my best mates called Camp Simkin. And being true to being American, it was a summer camp. We went away for the weekend. There was color teams and we did tug of war and relay races and kickball. And it was such a fun time. We even had little badges that said Camp Simkin. And all of them obviously knew that I was a life coach at the time. And I'm going to attempt an Australian accent. They're like, Dora, you should do these camps for your clients. 
terrible, excuse me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, because I actually, <laughs> sorry, I need to work on that probably for my, when I get sworn in. <laughs> so they're like, oh, you should do this for your clients. And I said, oh, that makes a lot of sense because when I was working with people one-on-one, generally those kind of in their late 20s, mid 30s, it's like, oh, you know, what do you do for fun? What brings you joy? What are your hobbies? And a lot of people, especially in Melbourne, say they like to go to cafes. <laughs> well, that's very fun. It's not necessarily a hobby per se. So I tried to put this summer camp together. I called it Camp Kid in You. And the whole sort of ethos behind it was about helping people connect to their inner kid. And I used my sort of PR and marketing background, a half page spread in the age. I was in like Concrete Playground and Time Out and all of these publications. I had three people book the camp. So it was a bit like bow, bow. something was not landing. And I think Australians I've seen summer camp in movies, they get it, but there's no nostalgia piece there. Right. Yeah. Instead of looking at it as a failure, I kind of went back. I spoke to someone who was in marketing and they're like, Dara, Australians are more likely to spend money on their professional development than their personal development, which for me was quite a big aha moment. Because I think in America, you've got like your guru, your kinesiologist, your life coach, your this, your that and everything else. Where I feel like that's kind of cottoning on a bit more in Australia. But I ended up putting this weekend on. I had already been out of pocket. I had the place, the caterer, all the things. So I went out into my community and begged 12 people to come. <laughs> and it was just a kind of having a bit of an MVP around, can I change people's mind about play? Like, how can I get people to go from thinking that play is like fun and games and silly and dogs and sports to thinking that it's really deeper around vulnerability and openness and empathy and curiosity. And at the end of the weekend, we had a check-in and, and everyone kind of got to that conclusion. For me, I really knew that I had landed on something juicy. And then from there, I started to look at how to design these programs to bring to enterprise. So that is my long Camp, camp Simkin journey from go to woe of how my business was formed. Amazing journey, Dara. I think that's such a wonderful observation that you made about how mental health inside and outside of the workplace tends to be something that's just very heavy. It's something we talk about a lot at Human Leaders. And as a a burnout researcher, it's something that I speak about as well. And you're kind of already inspiring me to take maybe a different lens to these kind of discussions with people around, you know, looking after a mental health. And so I'm curious to sort of dive deeper into your work. You're founder and chief play officer at Culture Hero, best title ever. And you bring purposeful play to the workplace. And I'm really curious about this term purposeful play. Can you share with us a little bit about what it means and what it might look like? Mm, Absolutely. When we think about play, there is this play that we do for its own sake. It's enjoyable, it's fun, it's exciting. But when we look at how to bring that into enterprise and actually create outcomes and create a reason why people and businesses are going to invest in something like this, It's around this driver of purposefulness, of being deliberate, of being intentional. Because while I think team building has its place, businesses can spend a lot of money on team building. It can be fun. It's really about connection. But I do find that I kind of liken team building as if you did a really intense like psychedelic journey and then you don't know how to integrate it back into your life. So you have this profound experience with all of your workmates. It's super fun. You're like out of your comfort zone. You've done whatever you've done. And then you go back to the workplace and it's literally the same old shit, right? For me, purposeful play is about the integration of those playful experiences. And what we do is not necessarily so much like kind of slapstick play where you'd go on a treasure hunt or do an amazing race or something like that. We actually use a lot of what is applied improvisation or business improv, where we're using all of the sort of maxims and learnings that an improviser would use on stage to bring that into the workplace. 
and one of the big key learnings of improvisation. And when you think about business, you're improvising all the time. You are literally thinking on your feet, especially now in this day and age, there's so much uncertainty that you're literally having to adapt constantly. And so if you don't have the skills to improvise in a confident way, then I think you're really missing out on a lot of opportunity to lead with purpose. And in improv, there is the age old learning of saying yes and. And it's really about building on other people's ideas. And I'm not sure if either of you are familiar with the concept of yes and. I see like grins and nods and, and thumbs ups. It's such an incredible way to cultivate a sense of collaboration, to bring confidence in people, to build on ideas. Because I think I make this joke when I first came to Australia, there was a lot of yeah, nah, which is a little bit less intense than no or no, but. Can I just like translate for our international audiences? So yeah, what yeah. Karen has just said is yeah, nah, which is. Yes, no. So it's, and if I'm hearing correctly, it's this kind of idea of, I don't want to, I'm basically saying no, but I'm softening it a lot. Is that, mm. yeah. Yes. It's a polite yes. letdown. <laughs> exactly. And I think that happens often in the business world. And when we are trying to be innovative and creative and edgy and really differentiate ourselves in the market, we need to be outlandish and creative and building and building and building and finding that time to really be divergent and iterate and be exploratory. So just going back, I went on a tangent a little bit around the purposeful play piece into improv, but it's related. Yeah, there's a huge piece around debriefing, around discussing, around contemplating, reflecting and sharing. Because I think, again, that's where the integration piece really comes in. It's like finding the intention behind the play. How did that make me feel? How did that make you feel? How did that make us feel? What did I learn about myself in that experience? What was something that I was surprised by? And you know, just having a bit of of a reflection time around what did that bring up for me? And I think a lot of times people think play is really accessible, but actually for adults, it's very inaccessible because of the way that we are expected to behave, especially at work. And there's a little bit more breathing room now, especially now with COVID. People are wanting to have more space for themselves, for their authentic way of living and being, because we saw behind the curtain with everyone working from home, with everyone's families and all the challenges. I think there's a much stronger demand for that level of authenticity in the workplace. And I do believe that when we bring play with purpose, it creates this openness for that. And speaking about conformity and school and wanting to fit in and not look silly and be judged, you know, we take that into our adult lives. And I think if you think about play as a muscle, we have very strong play muscles as children. It's very accessible, but then it's almost like that muscle atrophies because we don't have a chance to work it out as often as we normally would when we were younger. So for me, purposeful play is really about playing with intention. It's almost like intentional chaos. Like we need that chaos and that wild idea space to be innovative. And then we can bring it back in and have that discipline and that execution to make it happen. It's very much about that kind of divergent space in order to converge. I think what was so interesting that I heard you mention as well, Dara, is to me, when you mentioned this idea that teams often go off into an external space and they do team building and then they come back into an organization and there's no capacity to sort of integrate that into that space. And I think what's really fascinating is how the confines and the rigidity of the workplace itself, as you mentioned, kind of stamp out the opportunity for us to play or to have authenticity. And to me, what I've learned through your explanation of play there is that it's so much more than the idea of, you know, in my mind, play is about mucking around and being silly and those sorts of things. But what I'm really hearing from you is it's about creating a safe space for adults to not have to take themselves so seriously all the time, to perhaps approach things from a place of curiosity 
versus rigidity and rules and conformity to norms. It's a place for authenticity and ideas and perhaps things a little left of center that we might typically find are an, is an uncomfortable concept to bring into the workplace. So I can't help but almost thinking 10 steps ahead. And in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, play is a barrier breaker for things like psychological safety. It's an opportunity Amen. or a gateway <laughs> to some of these kinds of things. I think there's so much that we can stand to gain when we bring play into the workplace. And I wonder some of the organizations you've worked with, sort of what they were like before and after. Can you give us an idea of perhaps what people risk missing out on if we don't integrate something like play into how we work? To be honest, there a lot of the organizations that we do work with already understand why it's important. And that's why they create the invitation for it to happen. So organizations who experience a before and after that isn't unfortunately the case because those are the kind of the organizations that are very risk averse. And because play is, although so innate, so natural, so human, it is a risky, unresearched piece around the workplace. And this is something that I'm really diving into now that I've been working in this space for seven years. For me, there's a huge appetite around the research piece of how can I start to work with organizations who want to help prove the efficacy of this because unfortunately at the moment it is all anecdotal. You cannot find any hard data anywhere, not even probably in chat GPT, all I haven't actually looked yet, <laughs> that says play improves this, this, and this by this much. Or, you know, like there's not a lot of cumulative data, like hard numbers that back it up. And I think sometimes that's the kind of sell that you need for an organization to feel comfortable about investing. Because it's not only investing money, it's investing time and a lot of commitment. It's not a band-aid thing. And I think sometimes with team building, it is a bit of a tick box or, a, oh, we're playful because we did this. When actually play is very much, it's a mindset, it's a habit, it's a behavior change that has to be embedded in order for the results to really be cultivated and harvested. I've worked with tons of organizations over the last seven years, but to be honest with you, I'm happy to air my dirty laundry here. I've only ever worked with an organization for as long as six weeks. There's not been one organization that has been willing to take the plunge with me and my business to really go deep. And people say, oh, you know, what you do is a bit of a unicorn and people are just not ready for it. And I've been sitting here for seven years waiting for someone to be ready for it. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're a leader and you're ready to take this on, call 1-800-PLAY. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so... I've seen the remarkable effects of a half day engagement or a full day engagement or, you know, I've done three day leadership intensives and things like that. I see the transformation in people on a personal level. An example I'll give is a couple of months ago, a couple of my team and I traveled to South Africa to work with a foundation called the Do More Foundation. And play is embedded into what they do. They look at how to use play as a way to help the children of South Africa. And so everything they do is around nurturing them and helping them learn and helping them have access to things like food and so many. It's an incredible organization. And so because play is what they do and what they put out into the world, they as a team know that it's so important. And so they had us come and we did an engagement for them for a couple of days. And at the end, we're reflecting and we're sharing. And one of the colleagues had said, you know, I'm not intimidated by my boss anymore because I got to play with him. And I saw him as a person and now I'm going to talk to him more and not be afraid of him. And so that hierarchy is inevitably, and you were talking before, Alexis, around the barrier breaking and that space for more entry. 
it's an incredible way to break down hierarchy. A couple of other people talked about how they're going to go home and play more with their children. But what was an amazing story was the head of the foundation and another couple of leaders had a chat with a stakeholder that evening after the first day. And they had this amazing energetic first day and they learned all this stuff and they had a really embodied experience. And when they went to have this stakeholder meeting, they brought that energy into the space. They engaged in a different way. They did a check-in, they played a game or two. And they said that it was such a productive, incredibly fruitful experience that they had never had before because they had never really brought play into a meeting. Of course, they did it internally because they knew it's important because that's what they live and breathe as an organization. But to apply it to an external person like a stakeholder for them was probably quite risky, but the benefits were amazing because of the way that people responded. And I think one thing to caveat here is that play is an invitation. We can't ever force people to play. So when we're trying to cultivate a sense of playfulness in an organization, it has to be an open invitation. You invite people to come and whether they attend or they don't, it's up to them. But play is contagious. You can have the most uptight, stick up the bum leader that's ever existed. But if you look them in the eye and you ask them, do you want to feel joy? They're not going to say no. Everybody on the planet wants to feel joy in some way, shape or form. And so once you see other people playing, you feel that connection and you want to ease yourself in. And always when we do programs, we create kind of stepping stones for people to enter in a way that is accessible. It's not about calling people out or making them feel exposed. Because it is inevitably exposing when you play like this. It's such a vulnerable space because it's so foreign to us now in this kind of rigidity that we know as our workplace. So I think there's just so much rich learning around humanity in the workplace when we bring in this beautiful aspect of play. And I love that you use the word humanity there, Dara, because that was something that also jumped out as you're speaking for me that, you know, it is this sense of seeing leaders as people, seeing each other as people in the workplace. And I'd love to just take a moment to kind of dig in a little bit deeper to the question of what stops people from taking these steps into a direction of play. Because I think I would theorize that even with research, even with hard data to show its impact, there will still be potentially a little bit of a disconnect for some leaders in actually implementing that. And my feeling is that that might be partly that fear of really being present and letting go. Because when you said, do you want to feel joy? I can imagine like I'm a 24 seven joy girl. So you've got me, but there will be, I think for some people, this response of I'm afraid to actually let myself feel true joy in the workplace because I'm afraid maybe that means I'm laying down a mask that I've been wearing, or I'm making myself vulnerable to judgment from others in a way that feels very exposed. We use that word too. Are there any other things? I don't know if that resonates for you. And perhaps if there are other things that you might think would be holding leaders back from actually being open to this being a part of their work on a more long-term basis. The thing that comes to mind, and this kind of was, I'm speaking to a bit of what Alexis was saying before, it's this idea of seriousness. And there is no evidence that seriousness equals success. Literally none. We know that happiness creates success. We know that the well-being in the workplace creates success. But this idea of seriousness doesn't make you more successful. It doesn't bring you in more money. It doesn't increase your bottom line. It doesn't keep your people around. And I think more and more, there needs to be a balance. And maybe seven years ago, when I first started this, I wouldn't have the experience that I do now around the importance of balancing who we are at work. Because I think previously, I would have been on my soapbox saying, bring your whole self to work, everybody, all of it, bring your whole self. And I've actually done that in my own organization. And I feel like I've been burned. And I think when you are bringing your whole self, it is a serious amount of vulnerability involved. 
And whether we like it or not, work is transactional. Everything is transactional in the workplace. Even if your people love you and you're amazing, you still pay them. There's still money involved. Like money underpins business and money makes people behave in a certain way, unfortunately. And I think that we have to just remember that work is a transactional place and we have to have outputs and execute and deliver. And we have people that we have to listen to and all that sort of thing. That doesn't mean we can't allow ourselves to be ourselves in a way that we're kind of pushing our edge a little bit. And I did a talk many moons ago around how you have to cha-cha out of your comfort zone. And it's a bit of taking one step forward and maybe one step back and maybe two steps forward and maybe one step back and really just towing the line of your edge in a way that doesn't make you feel like a deer in headlights. And I think that's why like when we get really excited about something or we learn something for the first time, we can sometimes throw ourselves into it so much that whatever happens, like we've been too vulnerable and something's happened to us. And so now we go 20 steps back to where we were before. So I think it really is a lot, especially as a leader, self-awareness and emotional intelligence around what are my boundaries and how can I let them breathe a little bit? How can my boundaries expand and contract depending on the situation, depending who I'm relating to, because you're not going to be vulnerable with all the people all the time on every level. So I think it really is a strong sense of yourself around how comfortable I am in a situation. And can I allow myself to just push myself a bit and see how it feels and check in and say, you know, was that something where I felt like I was growing and learning and evolving as a human being? Or was that really difficult and semi-traumatic and I actually don't want to ever do it again? So I think it really is just about kind of towing that line of discomfort and never pushing yourself so far out that you feel so exposed that you don't ever do it again. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I can't help but thinking that play is something that human beings need to so beyond the workplace right now. Listening to you talk about that reminds me of all of the times through my adolescence and as a young adult, the messages I got from society at large, that my interests, that my personality, that certain things about me shouldn't be brought forward in certain instances, that we shouldn't be humorous about certain things like grief or like mental health, or that I shouldn't still enjoy riding my skateboard or my surfboard because I'm a 21-year-old person. Or do you know what I mean? We get these messages, I think, from the time we're young, when as children, we're just this pure bundle of fun and joy, and we're just enjoying the richness of the present moment. And as we grow, we get this stamped out of us, and it's replaced with expectations of who we think we need to be to fill a role. And I just can't help but thinking, play whilst I'm seeing, and Dara, you're explaining to us the incredible benefit this can have in a workplace setting and in a team setting. But this is just something that adults have forgotten how to do. We've forgotten how to play. We've forgotten how to have fun. And in a lot of ways, we've forgotten things about ourselves through the process. And I think through that societal kind of pressure of not indulging those parts of ourselves into adulthood. And you sort of touched on this briefly, but I'd love to hear from you, Dar, if there are any more misunderstandings that leaders have around play. I think just that notion of play being frivolous and a distraction and it's going to take us away from our work as opposed to contribute to it. And one of my mentors talks about how play has a PR problem because what you've just explained, Alexis, I think when we start to enter school and we start to sit in rows and we start to walk in the line and we start to have 
a time yeah. schedule and we have homework. And like you said, that rigidity starts to creep in so early and there isn't rigidity in play. There are boundaries though, I think as well. When you think of a playground, a playground has boundaries. And we as human beings, especially as children, and I'm a new mom, I have a two-year-old, kids need boundaries in order to feel safe. And so as a leader, it's up to you to create those boundaries, but how tight are you making them? Because I think Mm -hmm. there's a way to create a boundary around play that says, this is what it looks like for our organization. And this is the amount of space we're going to give to it. And this is how much we're going to use it in this area and for collaboration and for teamwork and for well-being or whatever it is and, and really define it. Because I think play is such a, I don't know if it would be like you call it ephemeral or ethereal, but like it's kind of like love. I've worked a bit with Dr. Stuart Brown, who's an amazing play researcher. And when he talks about play, he talks about how it's very hard to define. And you'll Mm -hmm. find hundreds of different definitions of it because it is so big, like grandiose when it comes to being a human. Just remembering that that play is not this like crazy out of control situation where people are going to be bouncing off the walls and like taking their pants off or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) they can be contained. And that's where that purposefulness comes in. Amy Edmondson, who coined psychological safety, and I love how you made that connection before Alexis around psychological safety and play, because it really is this low stake environment for people to be able to explore. Like there's no outcome attached to it. So we can use that learning and that way of being in that low stakes environment to then apply it to a more high stakes space. It's like, remember when we did that thing where we played yes and, or when we did that game, we felt this way and it helped us do this. We can apply that to the way that we have a meeting or the way we engage a stakeholder. And so it's almost like you have to, again, create those opportunities of playfulness at the start and be really deliberate about it and create that space in order to then make it more of a fluid habit. Again, it's like that muscle. You don't just like go and run a marathon. You have to go and start out with a couple of kilometers. So it's play is very similar in the workplace. You have to just try it on and see how it fits in your organization because every organization is different, every culture, every leader. So play is not this blanket thing that you can just inject in like, here are the five steps of how to bring play to your workplace. Like that's not the work that we do. There's not a custom solution. Sorry, there is customizable solutions per culture. That's not like an off the shelf is what I meant to say. It's not an off the shelf, like kind of five-step program. So just kind of summarizing what, I was trying to say around what else do we need to kind of know as leaders or misconceptions is that play has boundaries, that we need those boundaries Mm -hmm. in order to feel Mm -hmm. safe. That's how we cultivate a sense of psychological safety, that play can be applied to more serious, more challenging moments in time to create more lightness and accessibility. And it really starts with permission. I think it starts not only for leaders to give permission to their people, but for them to give permission to themselves. And that's what you were talking about around this idea of pleasure. A lot of people are going to think that they don't deserve to have pleasure or they don't deserve to feel joy or they have to be doing so many things and being busy. And as a leader, just connecting to yourself and saying, what makes me feel good? And oftentimes it's going back to your childhood and saying, you know what? And this is like a silly example, but it's like, I used to love riding horses as a kid and I have not ridden a horse in 20 years. And so you damn it, go back on that horse, pun intended. (laughs) So I think it's just... It's not everything all at once, like that amazing movie that just won all the Oscars. It's not everything everywhere all at once. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit at a time. (laughs) I think the boundaries is such an important point because I think for me, that to me feels like it could be the biggest misconception. Well, if we start letting people have fun, where does it end? Are they silly in business meetings? And I think it's this misconception that play is constant silliness. 
or bringing humor where it's not needed. It's the boundaries is what makes it a functional piece of workplace culture, I think. So I'm really glad that you explored that for us. And I think also what you mentioned sort of at an individual level, Dara, as well, is I think we often think of in order to grow, people need to be right outside of their comfort zones. It's like the comfort zone is some blob and there's this dot, you know, another mile away and you've got to jump there. And I think I remember years ago, a friend telling me, you know, it's not about leaving your comfort zone, it's about expanding it. And I think finding ways through play to start to sort of shift the dial on where a a level of comfort lies very intrinsically then flows over into how we interact with each other, how we run meetings, how we're treating each other as human beings. And I can't help also think that there's got to be a little bit of an interplay between the trust and respect that is required for a sense of psychological safety. But play could be maybe even a tool for building that sense of trust and respect amongst in ourselves our incapacity to do something that we didn't maybe think we were capable of, but also in each other. Mm. Play is being a human. We literally would not survive if we didn't play. Every animal on the planet uses play as a way to navigate their environment, to learn and become their thing. You know, like every time you see a puppy or a bear cub or any small, cute little thing, they're always playing. I mean, monkeys are a great example of that. And what's incredible about human beings is that we are what's called neotenous. And neoteny is the idea of forever playing. Like human beings never actually inherently stop playing. There are forces of environment and circumstance that can create that, but we are inherently playful. And that is how we have continued to innovate and evolve. In order for us to play, that's how we've gone to the moon. And that's how we're building robots. Like that is play. You know, when organizations want to innovate and be on the cutting edge of things, You can't do that unless you create a space for creativity to flow. And creativity is the doing of the being of play. And when I was a life coach, you have this model of be, do, have. Who do you want to be? What do you have to do to get there? And what will you have when you're there? And I've kind of adapted it into the play space of saying, okay, if you want to have innovation and you need to be playful in order to arrive there. And so this kind of notion of being playful is, again, cultivating that mindset. And going back to this thing of like silliness, Alexis, is You know, there's a big difference between being childish and childlike. Mm. And so when you think of a childlike curiosity or a childlike sense of wonder or a childlike sense of adventure, that's the things that we want to cultivate in a business. And humor also has its place. There's an incredible talk by John Cleese from Monty Python about creativity, where he says the best funeral that he ever went to was a celebration of life where there was humor and jokes being cracked and the, the celebration of something that is usually quite somber can totally be shifted by incorporating a sense of humor and lightness. I think what I found, especially being in Australia for the last 13 years, there's a very strong sense of self-deprecation in humor. And I think it comes from the English. No offense. And I just think that that level of like taking the piss here can sometimes get in the way of having that more authentic way of interacting and playing. And I'm going to take the piss out of you, which ha 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 is really funny, but actually it's generally quite hurtful on the receiving end. And so I think we need to remove this idea of like taking the piss being a playful thing. And I don't know if you need to translate to others in other countries, Sally. (laughs) But yeah, it's just that kind of like having a go at somebody or I just keep uttering Australianisms. But, you know, practical jokes and that kind of thing, I think, can really skew our way of approaching play in a way that is authentic and real and open. So, yeah. I love that. I think it's really important to identify as well that when we're talking about play, we have all these sort of preconceptions about it. And what I'm hearing is it's those are ways of, I think, creating more distance between human beings. So for example, taking the piss, having a go at someone, which basically means low key or even 
you know, sort of ironic and insulting people or sort of pointing out some deficit is really quite distancing. And I think there's so much potential, as you've described, and I love that you mentioned also that this is our innate state as human beings. This is how we are designed to be throughout our lives is actually a way of creating more connection, of feeling more seen and heard for who we are and really bringing that authenticity, which can have huge you know, ramifications at work, but also beyond. Now, I'm curious, Lex, I'm going to volunteer both of us now. We're happy to be guinea pigs. We're wondering if you could maybe walk us through purposeful play exercise that you might do with your clients, just so our listeners can get a bit of a feel for what this might look like. My pleasure. So this is going to be a little bit chaotic because that's what we've been talking about, a bit of playful chaos. So this is a pointing game. And what I'm going to ask the two of you to do and those listeners at home or wherever you are, I want you to look around the room and I want you to out loud point at something and say what it is and then move on to the next thing and point to it and say what it is and do that for 30 seconds or so. I'll bring you back when you're done, but look at something, point at it and say what it is and move on to the next thing. Go. Okay. Bracelet. All right. Pen. Bottle. Coffee cup. Tree. Microphone. Photo frame. Duvet. (laughs) Mountain bike. Lampshade. Phone. Kettle. Microphone. Keys. Laptop. Great. All right. Now what I'm asking you to do, this one's getting a little bit trickier. I want you to point at something and call it the thing that you saw before. So an example would be, you're going to start looking at the ceiling and say nothing. And then you're going to point to the ground and say ceiling. Then you might point to the wall and say ground. Then you might point to the window and say wall. Okay. So start by pointing at the roof and saying nothing, point to the ground and say ceiling, and then go from there. All right. Ready, go. Nothing. Business card. Lip balm. Bracelet. Microphone. Coffee. Desk. Lampshade. I got it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Kettle. Mountain bike. Floor. All right, great. Well done. Third round, final round. I want you to point at something and call it whatever you want. Okay? So just point at something, call it whatever you want, move on to the next thing, and then that will be the end of the game. So ready? Go. Spaceship. Guy. Pajamas. Dog. Tiger. Food. (laughs) Pizza. (laughs) Music. Uh, Mustang. Birds. Hairbrush. Surfboard. Surfboard. (laughs) All right. Well done. Bring it back. Round of applause. So let's have a debrief. Which of those games of the three was the hardest? I was going to say for me, calling something the second one, calling something by its incorrect name because I hate getting things wrong. Yeah. Okay. Great. I don't like making mistakes. It's so uncomfortable. I've just realized. Mm. Right. If I was in front of someone, I do know that it's a mug. I'm just calling it for this guy. Like I'd have to be Mm -hmm. defending. (laughs) Mm. All right. So in such a small 30 second to a minute exercise, there's already been so much exposed about the way that you show up in the world. So not wanting to be judged, wanting to justify, not wanting to be wrong. So these are, like I said before, there's such rich learning in having these sorts of activities and then actually going in and digging a little bit and talking about them. And it really depends on the person. Some people find when I run these exercises, the third activity is really difficult because it requires a sense of like uncensored imagination. And what I'm curious to know is when you were calling things random things, did you put sort of boundaries on yourself? Maybe you wanted to call something Apple twice, but you didn't because that would be dumb. Or was there any kind of inner dialogue or inner critic around calling something something? Or did you put any rules on yourself? If I'm completely transparent, I think my brain was like, let's think of cool things to say, like Mm. not just like boring book. 
Mm-hmm. I said tiger. And then I heard like say surfboard and I was like, we oh, are yeah, surfboard. So I think it was, mm. I put pressure on myself to sound cool, which is so embarrassing to admit. It's not embarrassing. And I think for me, the immediate response was, I felt like I needed to be able to visualize what I was trying to say. So I just took my mind from inside my office and then put it in the front yard. And I was like, what's out in the front yard? And it's like, well, grass, sky, cats. Like I almost needed a logical reference point. Like I, mm. I couldn't almost fully let myself just say whatever. <laughs> mm. Is that okay though? Oh gosh, it feels comfortable. I don't know if it's right or wrong, mm. but to me, it feels comfortable to have like a comfortable reference point. Mm. And actually like that's not wrong. I would say mm-hmm. it's right. Mm-hmm. You just played the game in the way that felt natural to you. And I'm sorry, Sally, I realized when I said it's not embarrassing, I totally discredited your feelings and I apologize. <laughs> what I meant to say is that if, if it was embarrassing for you, it's like, you know, an unveiling of what are our sort of like creativity scars or kind of play scars in a way. It's like something has happened to you in your life that has like led you to have to feel that way or feel exposed or feel embarrassed or feel in control or feel like you needed to do this or this or that. So definitely there's so much to learn and having these robust discussions, even though it's taken us three minutes, it does actually show a lot. Amazing. Thank you so much for walking us through that. And I think that's like just really beautifully shown us how something really short, really brief and something that we can do literally right here, you know, at our desk, wherever we are to connect with. And I love that kind of piece of like how it makes us feel, because I think that really then unpacks a lot of the automatic sort of subconscious behaviors that we might have or ways that we have of responding to things in certain situations and revealing those. I can imagine I can, you know, can see could be very impactful for then the next meeting that we have together, for example, bringing that consciousness to it. So thank you so much for that exercise. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I found that really valuable. And I found that the connection between our responses, seemingly unrelated, you were able to really draw that out of us. Is that right or wrong? Or how does that make you feel? Mm -hmm. And I think Sally and I have both worked as coaches, and we've done a lot of work in self-awareness, both on ourselves and with other people. And it can take some time to sometimes get to those stories. And you just sort of brought those out of us within three minutes. So I'm kind of rethinking my approach to helping people on their journey as well. So thank you for that. A lot to think of. And Mm. I just want to ask one final question of you, Dara, if I may. And that is, what is the one thing that leaders like Sally and I, who've just been through this experience, can really do right now to actively bring a sense of play into their own life or perhaps into their team's experience? Mm. I think I mentioned it before, and I'll just reiterate what I said around just really connecting to yourself around what brings me joy and even maybe taking five minutes to sit down and write it down and come up with as many things as you possibly can. There's no right or wrong answer. It can be the most simple thing of like sitting and reading a book with a cup of tea and not touching your phone or again, going in horseback riding. Every person has their kind of own play personality, which is again, Dr. Stuart Brown's work. It's like, did you love collecting things when you were a kid? Go to the beach and start collecting some shells. Or did you really love moving your body? Well, try and find a local dance night or go to the club with your friend or just kind of, and I highly urge people to look up the play personalities by Dr. Stuart Brown and find the one that that they resonate with, because that's going to help kind of be their North Star back towards what brings them that level of joy. And again, sometimes it's hard to access it because we've forgotten. And so I think it goes back to that piece of permission and say, okay, I'm going to give myself permission to feel joy. And oftentimes when we do engagements, we have people and Brene Brown does this work as well is writing yourself a permission slip where it's creating that level of accountability and you're signing it and dating it and saying, I hereby give myself permission to feel joy for five minutes a day or whatever that is. And then so that kind of permission really starts innately in a leader. 
And then it really has to trickle down in, into giving permission to your people. Because I think if you're not embodying the importance of play yourself and you're just telling people to play, they're going to think you're full of shit. So you really have to kind of practice what you preach and walk the walk and not just talk the talk in order for people to take it seriously. Because you can have a ping pong table in your office, you can have games, you can have all kinds of kitschy stuff. And I've actually had someone previously talk about it being innovation theater, because it doesn't really matter if you have that stuff, unless you actually allow people to have time in their day to use it. And again, that's sort of bordering on not so purposeful play. But again, anything that can kind of take people away from the seriousness and the rigidity and give them a chance to just like get clear and kind of be in a little bit of a flow state and then go back to their work. I mean, we only have attention for 90 minutes max. So if we can understand that about ourselves and, you know, give permission for people to get up and go and do something, that's for me what leaders can really do is cultivate that sense of permission for themselves to find play and whatever that is in those small doses and then be able to put that forward and embody it and share it for others to do it too. I love that, Dara. I think that's a beautiful idea for all of us to really sit down and make a list, an exhaustive list, like as long as we can about the things that bring Mm. us joy, reflecting on how much we're doing those things in our lives. And I think also being able to start to seed some of these moments of play, perhaps at work and sort of thereby realize this isn't, it's not going to translate immediately into chaos. In fact, it can almost be quite subtle. You don't even need to announce this is play. It's simply bringing that intentionality to it and that permission. I love that concept as well. That mm. We are allowed to start to bring a little bit more of our full selves to work. So thank you so much for your time. It's been such a delight having you with us on the We Are Human Leaders podcast. Thank you, Dara. I loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the We Are Human Leaders podcast. If you'd like to engage Dara as a speaker or facilitator for your organization, you can find all her details in the show notes. And join our community of human leaders who are changing the way we work so humans, business and society can thrive at www.wearehumanleaders.com. It's been great to be with you. See you soon.